Thank you so much, Ron, and good, good morning, Spanish River Church. I had to check that it was still morning, right, here at 11. All right, it's so wonderful to be here with you all today, and uh, when I say that, I really mean it. Spanish River, um, the, your fame has gone before you, uh, and it's really the fame of faithfulness to the work of God. Uh, when I was in seminary, I remember hearing about this interesting church in Boca Raton that would plant churches all over the world, and I had no idea that I would be back here and even planting a church in Lauder Hill and standing on this stage uh, to be able to share the word of God with you today. So again, thank you for your witness. Thank you for your faithfulness. And I'm grateful for uh, the friendship of, of guys like Ron Tobias and Chan Kilgore who are so... Um, so dedicated to the work of the Lord and leading and praying with you all to see churches planted and to see the gospel go forth. So I'm grateful to be here again. As Ron mentioned, my wife Brenda is, is uh, preparing for our church, which is uh, going to worship at, a, at 1 p.m. And I'm, I'm grateful to be married to her for 25 years. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, thankful for her. We have three children, um, and uh, God has just been so good to us. So I'm really encouraged to be here today, and Grace Life Church that we launched in February right in central Broward County. My wife and I grew up in that area, honestly had no idea we would be back there, but God brought us right back there to see the gospel spread in that area among some family, some friends, and many people who no longer go to church or do not believe, and we want to see God's glory manifest there. And so Grace Life Church has been planted and launched in February, and by God's grace and your continued support and prayers, we will do so until he comes. And it's exciting for me to be here as you all have been going through this series called Encounters with Jesus encounters with Jesus. And I want to continue that series as we look at the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So if you would turn there with me, or it will also be on the screens. Um, Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, describes the disciples of Jesus, their final encounter with the physical Jesus, with the incarnate Son of of God. This is their final encounter with him before he ascends into heaven. So I want to read it in, again, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and this is what it says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. At this time of year, I'm sure that there are some of you in this room who are breathing a sigh of relief or about to give a great exhale because it is graduation time. Anybody graduating or have graduated? Years of study, sacrifice, tests, projects, sleepless nights, plenty of coffee. And uh, you've completed all of your classes, you've taken all of your last final, written your last paper, now it's come to an end. And most likely you haven't walked that road alone, right? There are parents who supported you, maybe even wrote a paper or two. Uh, friends who gave you some moral support, children or spouses who stayed up with you at all hours of the night supplying you or intravenously feeding you with coffee. And um, there were probably some times alone, right, where you were grinding out homework and projects, but it's graduation time. And I can relate because I have two children, one, two children who are going through that process. One, my daughter just graduated from college a couple weeks ago. And then I have a son who is about to graduate from high school. So thank God for this <laughs> part of the completion. Amen. Thank you. Thank God. And, and look, I'm applauding all of you who are also going through that. But listen, as graduation day approaches, there may also be some trepidation, right? With all of the education you've received, all of the inspiring talks, all of the mentors who've poured into you, you may be nervous or unsure about what's next. How can you know that the next step you take is the right step? How can you be sure you're focused on the right goals? And, and maybe it's helpful to have someone, maybe a parent or an older sibling or a teacher or a counselor to guide you, to walk beside you in the decision-making process to empower you to make the right decisions. Well, I say all of that because in a sense, it is graduation time for these disciples. These students of Jesus, they've, they've walked with Jesus for about three and a half years. They were taught by him, corrected by him, healed by him, inspired by him. And he wasn't just their teacher. He called them friends. He called them brothers. And so it was particularly troubling for them to watch him die because that's normally a permanent thing. But this writer of this historical account in Acts, the author named Luke, he also wrote the gospel of Luke. And in that gospel, he tells how Jesus was raised from the dead and how he encountered the disciples. You've been hearing about it the last few weeks, how he encountered men and women. He broke bread with them. He ate fish with them. He opened their minds, Luke said, to understand that everything that was written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms were pointing to him and that it was being 
fulfilled. And he told them in Luke chapter 24, verse 48, you are witnesses of these things, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. It's graduation time. And our text describes the amazing last few moments that they had with their teacher before Jesus was physically taken up from the ground into the air and into heaven right before their eyes. Can you imagine that? And inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke is careful to include certain details of this final encounter with these disciples because what's said here is a guide to understanding what's happening in the rest of the book of Acts and what God is continuing to do today through you and through me. And so there's a lot to unpack here, but I I just want to quickly go through three main points that I want us to notice from this text. And they are this, that Jesus offers a new power, a new mission, and a new hope. Jesus' followers are going to receive the promised Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit we receive when we believe in Jesus and it gives us a new power so we can embark on this new mission encouraged by a new hope that drives us and keeps us looking forward. So first of all, a new power. Uh, The disciples' last few years was one in which uh, they were with Jesus all of the time. And even though there was a target on their backs because of the murderous jealousy of the religious leaders around them, they went into any situation with confidence because Jesus was with them. Uh, they knew that Jesus had strength. They knew that Jesus had power that they couldn't fathom. The religious leaders were confounded by his wisdom. The sick were healed, the hungry were fed, the dead were raised, and now Jesus is going away from them. And he tells his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, to wait for the promise of God the Father, and they would receive power. What kind of power are they anticipating? Well, the Gospel of John records several instances where Jesus talks about and assures them with the promise of the power that the Holy Spirit will bring to them. In John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. In John 14, 26, he says, the helper will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John chapter 16, verse 7 Jesus says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And the word helper here, it means someone that will come to your aid, who speaks on your behalf, who defends you, who intercedes from you. Could also be translated as advocate or counselor or even intercessor. But you know, my favorite translation of this Greek word paraclete comes from the old King James Version. Anybody still have a King James Version, the Bible, that you read? Okay. Um, My favorite translation of that word, because in that translation, it says that the Holy Spirit is the comforter. 
And you know, that word comfort, it's more than just consoling you. It's more than just saying there, there, patting you on the back, even though the Holy Spirit will do. It comes from a, a, a prefix and, and a root word, that root word being forte. Everybody play music and you know that when you play something forte, you play it loud, you play it with strength. And that prefix con or com means with. I want you to know that the Holy Spirit comes with strength, with power. And time and time again, the disciples found that when Jesus was with them, worrying was pretty silly. He was in control. He had strength. He was powerful. And if it didn't happen, it's because Jesus didn't want it to happen. And they would find that same confidence they would receive from the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit would give them power. Disciples also found out the day that they received the Holy Spirit that the power of the Holy Spirit is gospel power. It's not just human power. It's not political power. It's not motivational power. Look at how Jesus compares the power of the Holy Spirit to the baptism of John. He says, uh, wait for the promise of the Father that you've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He's saying, on the one hand, John baptized you with water, but on the other hand, you'll be baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's like taking a bath before putting on clean new clothes. John's baptism prepared one for the arrival of the Messiah who would send the Holy Spirit. And then believers of Jesus, when receiving that Spirit, would be united with the Messiah. That's new. And would be clothed with the, in his righteousness, empowering them for the continuing mission to blanket the earth with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel power. The disciples asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says back to them, no, you will receive the power to do kingdom of God work so that you are not depending on worldly strategies for kingdom results. You will depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. You won't depend on your eloquence or your training or your survival skills because the Holy Spirit would remind them of Jesus' words. The Holy Spirit would teach them what to say. The Holy Spirit would show them where to go and the Holy Spirit would instruct them how to act. In the 90s, many of you in this room uh, probably had at least one bracelet with the letters WWJD on it, right? Y'all remember that. And it, it represented the question, what would Jesus do? And it's a good question, but it's not simply God's purpose that his children, empowered by his spirit, would simply emulate the things that Jesus did as if he was merely our example for good behavior. Another question that we could probably ask is this, what is the Holy Spirit doing now? Doesn't fit as well on a bracelet. <laughs> Doesn't sound as cool. 
But, but listen, if you have believed in Jesus, you have been gifted with the power of the Holy Spirit who applies the work of Christ to our life and who continues to guide us, to strengthen us, to teach us, and to comfort us. So my question to us is this, what is God the Holy Spirit doing in your life? Have you prayed lately to the Holy Spirit with humility to ask him to guide you? In your weakness to ask him to strengthen you? When you're feeling overwhelmed to advocate for you? When you're feeling guilty and maybe filled with shame to intercede for you? Believe me, the Holy Spirit is doing all of that for you, even when we can't think to ask for it. But as believers in Jesus, we've got to grow in our dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. We've got to go into every situation in our lives knowing that because we have put our faith in him and him alone to save us, that we have been filled with his spirit and we can have confidence that God is truly with us as we encounter any situation because we're not relying on our own strategies or our own intellect or our own strength. We are relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And not only does the Holy Spirit give us a new power, he empowers us for a new mission. Jesus said, not many days from now, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And just a few days later, it happens. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Luke tells the story like this. It says in, Luke, in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, in other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. This was a very spectacular and, and powerful way on the day of Pentecost for the Holy Spirit to come. And the day of Pentecost is a day that we actually celebrate today. In the liturgical calendar of the church, 10 days after we celebrate Jesus ascending to heaven. And Pentecost was a week-long feast where Israelites from all over the world came to Jerusalem. And they would renew their covenant vows to God like the children of Israel had done hundreds of years before. But this particular year, when the day of Pentecost came, we see in chapter that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the 120 disciples who were gathered. And it was poured out with such a display that it reminded people of that day when the ancient Israelites came to Mount Sinai after leaving Egypt. And they received, Moses received the law through fire and smoke and a sound like a trumpet. And now with fire and the sound of a rushing wind, the disciples of Jesus are recipients of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has written the law of God on their hearts. 
And they're now united to Christ in a way they've never been before. And they begin to speak about the mighty and wonderful things that God has done in languages that they never learned before. Why? Because people who had come to the Pentecost feast from all over the world would hear God being glorified in their native language. And right away, God is showing us that witnessing to Jesus' resurrection and making disciples of Jesus is not limited to Jerusalem. It's, it's not limited even to Israel. That's why Jesus said you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19 that we are to make disciples of all nations. They were being empowered for the mission of being witnesses to the entire world. And that mission continues until this day. They were to be witnesses in Jerusalem where God used Abraham and Israel to show the world what it means to be chosen, to be predestined as adopted children of God. They were supposed to be witnesses in Judea outside of the, uh, the epicenter of the traditional religious upbringing. They were supposed to be witnesses in Samaria to people they had distinct cultural differences with. Uh, in other words, they would call them dogs. They were supposed to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, even to those who were not Jews. People like me, who've never seen Jesus, but we encounter him because of the power of the Holy Spirit. They were to be witnesses. And a witness is someone who has observed something, right? They've seen it with their eyes. They've observed it with their senses. And, and of course, the disciples had seen the resurrected Jesus and when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke so boldly and openly about Jesus. But what about us? How are we witnesses? Well, when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, uh, you heard one sermon where Thomas wasn't there. One of his disciples wasn't there, and he didn't believe that Jesus was still alive. So Jesus came back, and when, G and when Thomas saw him, he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus' response to him was, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Listen, we may not be eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, but we are still his witnesses. Why? Because in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says that when we heard the gospel and believed in Jesus, we were adopted into the family of God and we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit within us that testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God because Jesus is alive. Amen? And it transforms every aspect of our lives to the point where others see the manifestation of Christ's kingdom reign in every aspect of our lives to the glory of God. So on mission as transformed people, we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And what does this end up looking like? It looks like a multi-ethnic international body of believers who would become one by virtue of the fact that the same Holy Spirit is indwelling us all. 
And the way that this community worships Jesus together and cares and loves for each other is a sign to the world of the final coming of the kingdom of God in the forms of a new heaven and a new earth where the presence of sin is gone. Listen, that's the mission. That's the mission. And given, amen, and given this new power with a new mission, we're encouraged because we have a new hope. In this final moment, the final encounter with Jesus, he's taken from their sight into heaven. And the disciples are caught looking. I just want you to think about this for a moment. You're there and Jesus is in front of you and he just starts levitating. Right? And, and he just keeps going up and up. And then there's a cloud. You could be forgiven to be just caught gazing <laughs> as the disciples were. But there's two men who are standing beside them in white robes. And we find out that they're angels. And they offer this gentle rebuke to the disciples. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You see, they are watching the ascension of Christ. And Jesus goes up like a king. You know, when a, when a king ascends to the throne, normally the throne is in a high place and they're walking up these steps. And that's just like what Jesus is doing, ascending to the throne. But you know, you know when the rain actually begins in earnest is when that king sits on the throne. It's not just the going up, it's the sitting down. And Jesus not only ascends, but he sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling firmly in control of everything, especially everything as it concerns you. Jesus told us, he told his disciples that it was to our advantage that he went away because he would send the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And that's why in Romans 5, Paul tells us that whatever we go through in this life only strengthens the hope that we have because Jesus has ascended and he has sent his Holy Spirit. He says in verse 3 of chapter 5 in Romans that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's why uh, Tim Keller says that the ascension is not the absence of Christ. It is the increased and heightened presence of Christ. It's not the loss of intimacy and protection, but the infinite magnification of it. When you have an understanding of what it means to have Jesus ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, you won't just be standing and staring. You'll be able to go through this life knowing that we have a hope and we have a hope for this world because Jesus continues to be with us through his spirit. 
But we also have hope because Jesus is going to return. And with his return comes the eradication of sin, the eradication of poverty and disease, the eradication of relationships that are frayed because of prejudices, because of misunderstandings, because of pride. When Jesus returns, all will be made new. And so we look forward to his return with hope. And that's why uh, for a set of Christians, uh, a group of Christians, a family just like us in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is writing to them because many of them are wondering. We, we've had some people die and what is going to happen to them. And Paul wants to encourage them about Jesus' return. And so he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's the hope. And that's why at the end, in verse 18, Paul says that this is what we need to do as the people of God. He says, therefore, encourage, comfort, strengthen, other, strengthen one another with these words because he's coming back. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful. Your word encourages us and reminds us that when we put our faith and trust in you, people like us who were so far from you, we've never even witnessed your res resurrection, never seen you, didn't even want you. But God, your Holy Spirit came to us to regenerate our dead hearts, to wake us up to move us from death to life so we would have even the ability to be able to repent of our sins, to come to you in faith, trusting that you and you alone would be able to save us and be with us and prepare us for your return. We thank you and we praise you for your Holy Spirit, your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen.